0: Buongiorno, benvenuto. Welcome to City Breaks Florence episode 6, which I'm going to devote to the third very large church in Florence, Santa Maria Novella. A little bit of history on it, um, but mainly I'm going to focus on three artists who are very much connected with the church, uh, to tell you a little bit about their work and their lives in general, and that would be Cimabue, Giotto and Lippi. If you've been to Florence, you may be familiar with the words uh, Santa Maria Novella because the train station is named after it. It is, in fact, the church that's very close to the train station, possibly the very first sight you see as you come out. You may recall that when Theresa May went to give her Brexit speech in October 2017, she picked on Florence as a good venue and she chose, in fact, Santa Maria Novella as a backdrop for that speech. It wasn't the very the first big Europe, Europe-wide historical event to take place there uh, because as far back as 1439 there was the Council of Florence which involved exotic foreigners coming from all parts of Europe and, and beyond. Um, more about that later. I think the main thing to remember about Santa Maria Novella is that for the 200 plus years when it was being built – That would be from 1219 to 1439. It really was a centre for the artistic community in the city. It was a place where artists and sculptors gathered um, to ply their trade, to get commissions, to work on things, to admire each other's work. But before we come to that, just a little bit of more general history. So the Dominicans, who built Santa Maria Novella, arrived in Florence in about 1219. Some of them had come from Salerno. And they decided to settle here on the site where the church is today. There was an ancient church there already, and they settled down there and began preaching. And they became very popular. It wasn't long before they were drawing ever larger crowds to come and listen to them. So they decided they'd better build a much bigger church. That was begun in the mid-13th century, and the foundation stone was blessed in 1279. I think work had already begun, but that was the sort of proper beginning, if you like. And the church wasn't actually consecrated until 1420, so a 180 years later. Although, as usual, little bits and pieces were done even after that date. In fact, it was further enlarged on a number of occasions by some of the leading Florentine families who wanted to do something memorable with their money. They would fund a chapel or fund the facade and have it named after them so when you walk round Santa Maria Novella you will in fact see lots of family crests up as part of the decorations. Not least on the front of the cathedral uh, right up at the top in the middle on the facade you'll see a billowing sails motif sailing boats um, there as part of the decoration on the central frieze and the reason is that the sails were the emblem of the Rucellai family who in fact paid for the facade to be put up so they wanted their symbol placed very obviously on the front of the building so that everybody walking into it would be forced to see it the strozzi family also made their mark um, beginning in 1350 with one thomas o strozzi who commissioned frescoes for a chapel in the church which then of course became known as the cappella strozzi and it's believed that he wanted to spend all this money to relieve his conscience in some way. He was a banker, and he knew that he had been committing what in those days was known as the sin of usury, so lending money to people at high rates of interest, making a big profit. The church didn't like that. Teaching went against it. um, And so he did it, made his pile, and then used some of the money to fund the frescoes in the chapel as a sort of payback. And then 140 years after that, in 1489, one of his descendants decided that he too would make his mark. We're talking here about Filippo Strozzi, and he commissioned frescoes for one of the chapels inside and had a family t- tomb built behind the altar. I'm guessing he rests in it to this day, but I don't actually know that. And then a third family, another set of bankers, the um also had money to spend. The Tornaboni in question was in fact the banker uncle of Lorenzo de Medici and he commissioned a series of frescoes for around the altar Um, and he too made sure that the family made its mark because he asked the artists to place the faces of some of the women in his family in the picture. So some of the people standing round at the birth of the Virgin Mary have in fact got the faces of some of the women of Florence of the day. In 1490, a Latin inscription went up, which read uh, in English as follows. The most beautiful city, renowned for abundance, victories, arts and noble buildings, profoundly enjoyed salubrity and peace. So a very nice, thankful inscription, just pointing out that everything in Florence had gone extremely well in that particular year. And that people wanted to gratefully note that by putting this inscription up. Peace, of course, was always important, and I guess the salubrity perhaps refers to the fact that the city had been plague-free for a period for which everybody was particularly grateful. As far as the remaining history of the church goes, there are just two years that I want to highlight particularly, and the first one is 1439, when the Council of Florence was held here. It was held, in fact, across the city, but many of the foreign visitors came and were put up for several weeks Um, actually in the Church of Santa Maria Novella, so it played a big part in it. The Council of Florence was a meeting in which people from from the Roman Catholic Church in many, many different places came together because the church, in fact, was divided in two. There was the Latin half and the Greek half, and they were trying to see whether they couldn't reach agreement on their differences and end this schism. Many serious topics were addressed. They discussed the question of purgatory, What did they both think on that? They talked a lot about the primacy of the Pope. The Greek half of the church had taken away some of the Pope's privileges and they were talking about whether these could be restored so that both halves of the church would behave in the same way. They talked a lot about doctrine and the wording of the Nicene Creed, that sort of thing. Um, And they talked very much also about how they thought mass should be consecrated. So really basic questions about the workings of the church. An agreement was reached and signed and it was thought that perhaps this had been successful but it turned out in fact not to be the case because when the eastern visitors got home to places like Constantinople and told everybody there what they'd agreed to the reaction was very negative. In fact they were treated as traitors, they were called heretics, they were shunned, in some cases they were even arrested and so in fact you'd have to say in the end that it wasn't a success and the schism between the two halves of the church was not mended. But we can also say that it was a massive event in Florence. Uh, There's a contemporary writer, Vespasiano, who wrote some memoirs. um, And this is his description of when everybody came to town. So he wrote, On a sober day, the Pope, with all the court of Rome, the Emperor of the Greeks, and all the bishops and prelates, assembled. And there are some slightly more exotic uh, descriptions of some of the people who came to be found in Paul Stratham's book, The Medici. So I'll read you a little bit of that. He refers to the whole event as a hitherto unseen spectacle and talks about, all manner of bearded, exotically dressed prelates clad in opulent silk robes. People seem to be particularly taken at the sight of the Greek archbishops who were dressed head to toe in black robes and wore black stovepipe hats and veils and brightly coloured cloaks striped red and purple or red and white. Vespasiano gives us a list of some of the people who came, um, which reads as follows, certain Armenians, Jacobites and Ethiopians, Ukrainians and Russians with Tatar servants and other entourages, including Moorish, Berber and Black African attendants. And then uh, Paul Stratham goes on to explain the following, quote, apparently at least one delegation had pet monkeys, while others had brought along exotically plumed singing birds in cages, as well as some tamed cheetahs. So it was a massive event, and I think it would be fair to say that anybody who lived through it would never have forgotten it. The other event I wanted to mention uh, took place in 1566, when uh, one of the buildings in Santa Maria Novella, known as the Friars' Chapter, underwent a massive makeover the reason was that Eleanor of Toledo Spanish wife of Duke Cosimo I, had arrived and she was very keen to have somewhere Spanish in flavour to worship and so the friars chapter was remodelled became known from then on as the Spanish chapel or the capelloni degli spagnoli and that too of course lent a very exotic new atmosphere in the church probably also ought to just add that under Napoleon, uh, the church was suppressed, um, as many churches were, and so that meant that some of the treasures were lost. But there's still plenty there to look at, and today it's jointly owned by the state, the city, and something called the Religious Buildings Fund, so they, between them, take care of it. So if we go back to the 13th century and think about when the building was begun, um, when it became a centre for art and artists, A place where masters worked, where they took on apprentices and creativity was everywhere. So if you were an apprentice, you probably arrived and you'd be given little jobs. Think work experience like um, mixing paint and running errands. Uh, And then gradually you'd be allowed to help a little bit with the actual paintings, perhaps filling in some background. If it was thought that you were any good, you might be given slightly more important tasks. So maybe filling in some of the people in the background of the the painting. And some of these apprentices went on to become master painters in their own right. The most famous example of that is uh, Chimabue, who was born in 1240 and who took on as his apprentice Giotto, who many thought, in fact, went on to surpass him. Dante, for example, had something to say on that topic. So he said, quote, Chimabue is believed to hold the powers in painting But now Giotto has the applause, so that the other's fame is dim. In fact, this eventually became a three-generational hierarchy. So Cimabue took on Giotto, and in the fullness of time, Giotto took on Lippi. So I'm going to take a little time now to work through the three of them and tell you a little bit more about their lives and about the work that they did, which you can see here in Santa Maria Novella, and in some cases about other pieces of their work that you can find elsewhere in the city. So let's start with the earliest of the three, Chimabue, who was born in 1240 and who as a young boy was sent to Santa Maria Novella for an education. I think the idea really was that he would learn to read but when he got there he was absolutely fascinated by the artists that he saw and spent a lot of his time copying their work and they soon began to realise that he was really rather good at this so they took him on as an apprentice. So he stayed at the Santa Maria Novella for quite a while, getting better and better. And then, as many artists did, he started to travel. He went to Pisa and Assisi, um, where, for example, he painted the roof of the Church of San Francesco. And then he returned to Florence and painted the painting a painting of the Virgin for Santa Maria Novella, a work which is mentioned by name in Vasari's Lives of the Artists, in which he said, quote, it was of so much admiration that it was carried in solemn procession with the sound of trumpets from his house to the church. So quite a nice description of the day the painting was finished. Chimabui had obviously been working on it at home, and when it was finished it wasn't uh, snuck in the back door, it was brought in solemn procession, a fuss was made. Some of his other very well-known works are not actually here. They're in elsewhere in Florence. So we talked in the last episode about uh, Cimabue's Crucifix, which you can find in Santa Croce. And the other very famous painting that he did was one of the Madonna on a gold background, sitting holding the Christ child and surrounded by worshipping angels. And that's one of three Madonna paintings, all by different artists, which you find in, I think it's the second room you come to in the Uffizi so it really makes a big impression they're quite large and the room has just got the three of them there. Another task that Cimabui carried out in Florence was he was appointed to help the architect working on the building of Santa Maria del Fiore um, and that he did for six years but um, unfortunately he, he died then and so the work was taken over by other people. And apart from his work, the other legacy that he left the city of Florence and indeed the rest of us Um, is the fact that he took on Giotto, he he spied his talent as a young boy and took him on as an apprentice. He was something like 20 years younger than Chimabui and trained him up and passed on his talents to the point where Giotto became even more famous than Chimabui himself. We heard Dante on the subject a minute ago, but Giorgio Vasari also talked about this and he said, quote, Giotto obscured the fame of Chimabui as a great light outshines a lesser. Poor Chimabui, he'd done such a lovely thing teaching this boy and, and making him such a good artist. Um, it seems rather mean to just say afterwards, well, he got much better than he did in the end. Ah, well, so let's move on then to the story of Giotto himself, who was known in fact as Giotto di Bandoni. He was born in Vespignano, which is quite near Florence, in 1267. And at the age of about 10, what he spent his time doing was being a shepherd. He used to sit up on the hillsides watching the sheep, but he found it rather dull and he, in fact, used to find flat stones that he could draw on and find sharper stones to scratch on them with and make many, many drawings to amuse himself. And it's believed that one day Chimabui was passing by and was so impressed by what he saw that he asked Giotto to join his workshop. Discussions with the family ensued, Giotto's father agreed, And so that's what happened. Giotto soon became an artist who was doing things a little bit differently. He was one of the first artists to think of the idea of using real people as models for his work. So earlier artists tended to copy each other a little bit um, and, and end up with some quite representational figures. But Giotto wanted people to look livelier and more real than that. So he used to ask people to sit as a model for him. And the result of that was that the biblical heroes that he drew were very lifelike. And of course, that was important in an era when most people couldn't read and they were relying on the paintings to tell the stories. So if they were lively and interesting, that was much better. Another of his innovations was that he was one of the first people to think of the idea of painting on very fresh plaster every day. He realised that if you painted onto wet plaster plaster that was fresh, i.e. a fresco, your work would last much longer. So he began doing that, and before long, other people started to copy him. And his fame grew, and pretty soon he had his own assistants and apprentices. He was getting lots of commissions from merchants and bankers, and then later on, in fact, from the Pope and the King of Naples as well. So his fame really did spread. Remaining here in Santa Maria Novella for a moment, uh, the main piece of work by Giotto, that you can see here is the crucifix which is hanging over the centre of the nave. We're lucky to have it, in fact, because it was hidden for centuries. It was found eventually in the sacristy and cleaned up and put where it is now because that was believed to be the place that Giotto had had in mind when he designed it. There's an interesting story uh, concerning Pope Benedict and Giotto. So Pope Benedict heard uh, all about this new artist and sent a courtier to the workshop to ask. Giotto to do a painting for him that could be taken back to Rome. and Giotto apparently p- painted a perfect circle in red and offered him that and the courtier asked if this was a joke and Giotto's reply apparently was that is enough and more. Presumably that could have gone either way but in fact the Pope was very impressed and his response was to invite Giotto to Rome to paint pictures for St Peter's and uh, a task for which he was going to be paid a fee of 600 gold ducats. Giotto, in fact, again, like many artists of the day, did quite a lot of travelling. He went to places like Padua and Verona and Ferrara as well, leaving work in all those cities. But when he came back to Florence, he took up work there again. There's lots of his work in Santa Croce. and In fact, there are four different chapels there with Giotto's work in them. So, for example, there's a series of paintings on the life of Francis of Assisi. There is, there's a series dedicated to Mary and in the Baroncelli family chapel there is a picture of the coronation of the Virgin which, as Vasari said, had, quote, a great number of small figures and a choir of saints and angels very carefully finished. Perhaps he is best known, though, in Florence for his work on the Campanile, the bell tower, um, for the cathedral, work for which he was paid a pension of a hundred gold florins and also was given another great honour, citizenship of the city of Florence. So when he died, he was going to be very much missed, and again Vasari tells us what happened then, writing, quote, By the order of the elder Lorenzo de Medici, who greatly admired the talent of this distinguished man, the bust of Giotto, sculptured in marble, was placed in Santa Maria del Fiore. And then finally, to turn to the third of our artists, Filippo Lippi. Actually, slightly confusingly, Filippo Lippi had a son, Filippino, who was also a painter, so you need to watch out if you see work marked Lippi as to which one actually you're looking at. And the father, Filippo, I think, is one of the most colourful characters um, amongst the artist fraternity, and that's saying something. As a young man, he'd actually took the vows of a Carmelite monk. His father had died, and I think that was deemed to be something that he could do, but it soon became clear that he wasn't going to make a very good monk and he was much keener on painting and eventually he ended up being taken on under the wing of Giotto and also in the household of the Medici family. Cosimo had realised what a great artist in the making this man was and so he took him into his household so that his expenses could be paid and he would have time to devote himself to art and get better and better but I think it would be fair to say that Filippo Lippi did not prove to be uh, the easiest of house guests. It's said that the monks had been quite pleased to see the back of him and Paul Stratham in his book The Medici is quite amusing on this topic and writes the following quote, it was generally agreed that he was a most fanciful liar, a cheat, a drunkard and a compulsive lecturer. And sure enough, it was soon discovered that when he was supposed to be in his room painting, his lust would get the better of him, and he'd go rushing off to look for girls. Cosimo de Medici, who of course was paying all his expenses, decided that perhaps they'd have him locked up in his room so that he could concentrate on his work. But this didn't work, because, as Vasari tells us, Fra Filippo's animal desires drove him to seize a pair of scissors, make a rope from his bedsheets, and escape through a window to pursue his own pleasure for days on end. It's thought that at this point Cosimo began to give up and feel that Lippi just never would behave in the way that everybody wanted him to, and he'd better be allowed to just come and go, and was said to have thought that it would be, quote, "'Dangerous for such a madman to be confined.' Another rather tolerant quotation from Cosimo de' Medici which he used with respect to Lippi was the idea that, quote, artists of genius are to be treated with respect. But there is another story which shows us that, in fact, uh, he certainly went too far on some occasions. This particular story revolves around a commission that Filippo was working on for an altarpiece in a convent and he saw a young novice, one Lucrezia Butti, who he thought was very beautiful, and he wanted her to be the model for the Virgin Mary. So he asked the nuns if that would be okay, and foolishly they agreed. And what happened next was that he seduced her, carried her off, and she had his baby. In fact, they must have lived together after that. I don't think she ever came back to the convent. And they had several children together, one of whom was the son, Filipino, who went on equally to be an artist. The father's main works, in fact, are not in Florence. They're in uh, places like uh, Padua. But there are works by Filippino, his son, to be seen here um, in the Strozzi Chapel, for example. One Filippo Strozzi commissioned a painting and he wanted it to be of his namesake. In fact, the namesake of both of them. He wanted it to be of St Philip the Apostle. So this was duly done. Just to finish the episode, I wanted to just make mention of some of the main parts of the church which you may wish to visit. So the great cloister outside has 56 bays in it, all of which have frescoes in them, so it's nice to wander around there. And then there's something called the green cloister as well, which has a fresco cycle uh, painted onto it um, of stories from Genesis, so the flood, etc. There's another cloister known as the Cloister of the Dead, which is full of tombstones from all different eras. Um, And then, of course, there's the Spanish chapel, the Cappelloni degli Spagnoli, which is very beautiful inside. It's a dazzling fresco cycle, all about the triumph of the Catholic Church. The colours are gorgeous. There's terracotta, there's gold and all those lovely jewel colours. And it covers practically the whole of the inside of the chapel. So it really is stunning to see. In fact, when Ruskin went to see it, he really very much admired it and wrote the following. He called it, quote, the most noble piece of pictorial philosophy in Italy. And all of this, don't forget, 100 metres from the main railway station. So, that rounds up my introduction to Santa Maria Novella. I hope you've found it interesting, and I hope that you'll stay with us and join me next week for episode 7, when we're going to leave the churches alone and go to a palace instead. In fact, the Palazzo Medici Riccardi, which was the first big palace that the Medici family built for themselves. In Florence we'll have a little look at the history of the building and at some of the artwork to be found inside and I'm going to use that episode too for a brief biographical introduction to five generations of the Medici family, the ones with whom this, that building is most associated. The Medici name is absolutely everywhere in Florence and so I think it will be useful to have an idea who was who, at least in the main generations the ones with names like Cosimo de Medici and Lorenzo il Magnifico that really pop up all over the place, everywhere you go in the city. So I hope you'll join me for that. And meanwhile, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening. Grazie. And look forward, hopefully, to your company next week as well. And for the moment, just sign out by saying Arrivederci.